Luke chapter 18. If you would follow as I read Luke chapter 18 at verse 31, Luke 18 and verse 31, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. I told you so. That's a phrase we don't normally like to hear, is it? When someone says, I told you so, it usually means they predicted something would happen, or they claimed something was true, or proposed that something would work, but you did not believe it, or you just simply could not understand what the person was saying. And when your disbelief or your confusion is cleared up later, It's never a whole lot of fun, or generally not a lot of fun, to hear that, I told you so, even if it just comes in silence. Husbands and wives understand this little game, don't we? And hopefully it's always with some joy of heart and gladness, but we always make predictions, we always talk about things, and have disagreements about what will in fact take place or will not take place, and then there's the inevitable, I told you so, even if it's just silence. Someone disregards a boss's or a parent's warning about negative consequences that will come if you don't stop doing what you're doing or start doing what you're not doing. And there's just confusion. How could that possibly be the case? I don't understand. I'm not going to listen. And so, in the end, the advice proves true. And we run into the I told you so experience. In such situations, it's no fun to hear, I told you so. We disregarded, we did not believe, we did not understand, we were confused. What we didn't understand came true. Yet, you know, there are occasions in life, they're more rare, I think, but there are times when I told you so is comforting. This is particularly the case when someone claims a wonderful truth or predicts a beneficial outcome that you cannot bring yourself to believe at the time or you cannot understand. We had an experience like this some years ago and the children were quite a bit younger. We had two cars and one with a battery that wasn't working, a standard transmission and so I'd gotten into the habit for several days of rolling it down the hill and starting it that way and uh, 
had a little trouble on one day and couldn't get it going. So I came back to the house and asked Beth if she'd bring the other car and push us a little bit further down the road to see if I could get this thing going. I knew I needed to get a battery, just hadn't got around to it yet. I needed one more day at the office and then I'd get to it. Well, the kids were very young. We said, Mom and Dad will be right back. Don't worry. We're just going to push the car a little ways and get it started, and we will be right back. So they stood there with wide eyes at the window, looking out while Mom pushed Dad's car. And it took a little longer than I anticipated, and soon we were out of sight. And Beth returned. I went on, of course, to the office at that point, but Beth returned to some crying children (laughs) who were sure their parents had vanished from the earth and would never be back again. You know, in that situation, as she came back, there was really there one of those I told you so moments. But in this occasion, it was comforting. It doesn't mean that we necessarily use that phrase. She didn't come in and say, I told you so. But in a sense said, remember what mom said? We'd be back. It was okay. You could wait. We knew you could handle it. And it brings a sense of comfort that you know mom and dad didn't forget about us. They were thinking about us all the time. They had it under control. Yeah, that's what they said. Sometimes I told you so can be a comfort. But whatever the circumstances, you know, in some respect, I think this little experience that we have in life is really a reflection of our God. Because God is the master of I told you so's. Just read your Bible. The Bible is filled with prophetic statements about the future. And God never, to my knowledge ever, has used this phrase exactly, I told you so. But in a sense, that's what he says when he says, this will happen, and it happens. And the Bible is filled with wisdom concerning the future consequences of our present actions. And it is filled with declarations of absolute truth. And God, then, is the ultimate master of I told you so. In the end, God has the final right to say, I told you so. I spoke my truth. I explained the consequences of your actions. I prophesied that this would be the case. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the key moments in history when God can say, I told you so. Now that claim, what I have just said, this proposition, is vehemently opposed by many critics of the Bible. Some of those critics come in the form of quote-unquote Christians, in fact. Perhaps you saw it this week. Newsweek magazine, picture of Jesus on the front, and it says, How Jesus Became Christ. How Jesus Became Christ. Now there is a a, a small little sense in which that phrase could make sense. 
Christ declared himself to be the Savior and Lord ultimately through his death and resurrection. But that's not what this means. That's not what this phrase is saying. How Jesus became Christ, of course, is reflecting this idea that it is after Jesus' death that people said he was the Christ. They made him into the Christ. They made him into God. They made him into the resurrected Savior. All of these things took place after his death. This is a very common line among many. In fact, as I understand it, this written by one who claims to be a Christian. There's not everything wrong about this article. In fact, there's some things in it that are fairly encouraging over past years. But this phrase, he became Christ, would say that Jesus has no I told you so in view. The passage that we have read here today clearly says otherwise. The gospel writers did not share this claim at all, but they pictured Jesus repeatedly through his ministry saying, I will die and I will rise again. Now as we come to Luke 18, there are some who have not been through this series with us, aren't here week in and week out, so let me just take a few moments to bring you into the context of Luke 18. We land in the middle of this book somewhere toward the, about two-thirds through, and you might say, why are we here, and what does this have to do with anything? Let me just briefly trace out where Jesus is when he makes this statement. This event takes place toward the very end of Jesus' life and the end of his three-and-a-half-year ministry. For over three years now, he has been traveling throughout Israel performing miracles to prove that he is sent by his Father. For over three years, he has been teaching the crowds, and the crowds are getting larger and larger as they come to listen. Now, the religious authorities are very angry with Jesus. They want him taken out. He's in their way. He's causing trouble. He's taking away their own esteem. And he's preaching an agenda that's very troubling to them. They don't like Jesus. There's no question at this point. They are dead set against what he's teaching. But the crowds adore him. Like, what a show. This man can feed thousands of people with nothing really, just a little starter food. He can heal people who are sick. He can even touch the dead and they come to life. This is quite a show. And his teachings, they're not like the Pharisees all comparing what everybody else said. He just comes and tells you the way that it is. He says this is the authority of God. He preaches the truth. And we're having a hard time finding out what he's saying that's really not true. Sometimes it's pretty convicting. The people love Jesus. There is a large group of people that are traveling with him from town to town as he makes his way to Jerusalem, and there are people in those towns awaiting his arrival. Jesus is wildly popular at this point in time. But Jesus himself is not deceived by his popularity, nor is he distracted by it. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51 a turning point in the book of Luke says that at the time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. So Jesus has his sights fixed on the showdown at Jerusalem. 
a showdown he knows will end in his death. Chapter 13 of Luke and verse 34. Luke chapter 13 and verse 34. He's headed to Jerusalem. What awaits him there? Verse 34 of chapter 13. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I would have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just before that, in verse 33, he says to his critics, no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So despite the adoring crowds which surround him daily, Jesus knows his days are numbered. And as a rabbi, he carefully instructs his disciples on this vital point. I'd like to go back to verse 31 of Luke 18 and to pick this apart a little bit for us as we look at this text and its implications to the life and the ministry of Jesus. We see him here at this point journeying toward Jerusalem and drawing aside the twelve. The twelve are the inner circle of Jesus' followers. These are the ones who are closest to him and will carry on his agenda in an authoritative way after his death. He's preparing them for his eventual departure. And it says here that we are going up to Jerusalem. Uh, Just as we look at this end of Jesus' life, as you see here on the map, he is moving his way to Jerusalem for the final visit. And it is in this final visit that he will give his life and will rise from the dead. And so he gathers these twelve aside and he says to them, we are headed for Jerusalem. It says in verse 31 that we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled there. What does he mean? Let's think of this. It's a reference to the Old Testament when you read the prophets. It's a reference to the first three quarters of the Bible. And in these prophetic books, some of them coming them all coming uh, centuries before Jesus lived, they tell of a Messiah, a deliverer. And Jesus says, everything that's written about me, the Son of Man, is going to be fulfilled in the city of Jerusalem. Let's think through that for a moment. As you note here, the Old Testament writers had prophesied for centuries that a man would appear on the scene and would deliver a death blow to Satan and to his kingdom. Genesis 3 and verse 15. The prophets foretold that this Messiah would be a descendant of King David. That he would be born in the town of Bethlehem in Israel and born to a virgin. He would reign supreme on David's throne over the nations of the earth. These are pointed prophecies. They're very far-reaching. He will rule over the nations of the earth. They're very pointed. He will be born in the village of Bethlehem. These and many prophecies like them have been accumulated over the centuries. 
And Jesus says, all that the prophets have said will be fulfilled in Jerusalem. All that they have said about the Son of Man. That is an amazing phrase if you know the Old Testament prophets. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, Daniel sees a vision and he sees one like the Son of Man who comes to God the Father, the Ancient of Days. And God the Father gives to this Son of Man prerogatives that belong only to God. So this one is in the presence of God and yet is carrying out the work of God. He is this one like the Son of Man. And Jesus takes that phrase from Daniel 7.13 and says, that's me. I am the one who is with God and I am the one who is God. The Son of Man. All that is said about the Son of Man in the prophets will be fulfilled in Jerusalem. What does that include? Verse 32. Luke 18, 32. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Now to say it mildly, that is not the Messiah the disciples expected. Messiah was supposed to come in and clean house. He was supposed to come in and defeat the rule of Rome and set up his kingdom and bring in this glorious day. Messiah would rule and reign, suffer and die? What's that about? Well, Jesus prophesies here very clearly that he will be handed over to the Gentiles. That is, not to the Jews. The Jews will deliver him over to the Roman authorities. A Roman official will condemn him to death, and Roman soldiers will execute him as they viciously torture him with a dreaded flogging that left his back shredded and bleeding. They will psychologically abuse him with words and threats and ridicule that would prove traumatic. In the end, they will stake his limbs to a wooden cross and they will lift him up to die. This, says Jesus in the huddle of the twelve, is your Messiah. He will die. The prophets have also foretold this, and it will come to pass. I am going to Jerusalem to die. Isn't it the natural response to such a prospect to run? If you know that you will be treated this way, would you not do everything in your power to avoid it? And where are Jesus' eyes fixed? They are fixed on Jerusalem. We are going to Jerusalem. This is a man on a mission. This is a man fulfilling centuries of prophecy. He knows what will take place, but he goes anyway. Jerusalem is his trap, but he journeys ahead. I want you to gain from this and understand that we all must that Jesus' death was no accident. And the subtle statement of articles such as this that are sent out into our culture 
and passed around is the idea that he was a victim of circumstances. He became the Christ. He became the ruler. He became all of these things in the church. And many are saying, fine, that's not a problem. But the idea that Jesus knew that he would die, that he gave himself to this death for a specific reason and thereby fulfilled prophecy, there's not a lot of time for that. But what we see here clearly in the text is Jesus being quite specific. I will be tortured and I will die in Jerusalem. And then he adds, verse 33, on the third day he will rise again. The Son of Man will rise again. Christ's lifeless body will be laid to rest But that same body will come back to life. He will rise again. Just as clearly as he says, I will die and be tortured by the Romans, just as clearly he says, I will rise from the dead. Having prophesied his pending death, with great specificity, he prophesies what will subsequently happen preparing his disciples for what is to come. What is their response to this preparation, to this prophecy? Verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. The disciples understood Jesus' words. The evidence of that is Matthew 16. We might refer there. Jesus predicts his death, and Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And said, no, Jesus, you can't do this. So he clearly understood what Jesus was saying, that he's going to die. I think the idea here is the disciples just cannot understand in in the sense that they can't make it work. How do they get it figured out that this Messiah is going to be defeated by death, this one who was supposed to liberate us from death and to defeat the bondage of Rome. Messiah is supposed to set up his kingdom and rule in righteousness. This talk of suffering and death simply makes no sense to them. They get what he's saying. They just don't see how it fits. And let's remember the disciples always are confused by the crowds. Would you not be confused as well? They are embracing Jesus at every village, gathering around. They're excited. The crowds are building. They're moving up to Jerusalem. This is where the kingdom comes, not where it ends. They don't get it. They don't understand. The fault, let me say, does not lie with Jesus. They remain in the dark because of their own ignorance and confusion and, in fact, disbelief. I'd like us to look, you can look up here on the uh, projection here, but if you want to just look at this in chapter 9 and verse 22, where we read an earlier prophecy of Jesus' death and resurrection. Chapter 9 and verse 22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, 
and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Very clear, isn't it? Earlier in Jesus' ministry, he says the same thing. He predicts, I will die and I will rise. In verse 44 of the same chapter, while everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did and said to his disciples, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm telling you. What I'm about to tell you, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them so that they did not grasp it. They were afraid to ask him about it. Chapter 12 and verse 49. I have come to bring fire on the earth. This is not a direct statement of his death, but listen to the illusion and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is completed. An allusion to his death, feathered into his statements as he addresses his disciples. Chapter 13 and verse 32, he replied, Go tell that fox, that is Herod, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. A clear allusion to his death. Chapter 17 and verse 25. Jesus says, but first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Another allusion to his death. Jesus didn't keep this secret. This is not an idea that just arises after his death. Jesus repeatedly stated and inferred that he would die in Jerusalem. And always coupled that, particularly in the specific statements, with the idea that he would rise again. And we know, as Luke continues his account, that that, in fact, is what Jesus did. As the book unfolds, Jesus reaches Jerusalem. And as he prophesied, the Jews turn him over to the Romans, who flog him and abuse him and crucify him, just as he said. And crying out, it is finished. Jesus completes his Father's mission on the cross. See him there. See him there, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who dies as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of your sin. His death satisfies the anger of God against sin and provides spiritual rescue to all who believe. And what is the ultimate evidence that Jesus defeated death and secured forgiveness of sin for his people? What is the ultimate evidence? It is the fact that he rose from the dead. Every man dies. No one rises from the dead. Not only did Jesus rise from the dead, he said he would rise from the dead. He said it often. He taught it clearly. And so as we come to chapter 24, after Jesus' death and after his resurrection, he can say, I told you so. 
We find that in Luke chapter 24, that on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Now notice this next phrase. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. He told you this. He told you this. Remember? Jesus appears to two men traveling to a nearby village of Emmaus in chapter 24 and verse 25. He comes upon them on the road and begins to speak to them about the things that have happened about Christ's death, and they express how discouraged they are that Jesus did not set up His kingdom. They thought that He was the Messiah, the Christ. They don't realize who He is in resurrected form. And He says to them in verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did you see that? All that the prophets have been telling you for centuries. This is an I told you so line. A we told you so line. Prophets have been telling you this for a long time. How slow of heart to believe. He rebukes them. Verse 26, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, isn't this the way it had to be? Is this not what the prophets foretold? Verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. These scriptures we have looked at earlier here on the projection of the illusions during his life, the statements during his life, reflecting what in fact was the prophetic line of prediction over these many, many centuries. In all the scriptures, he points to this preparation and he says, I told you so. Jesus then appears to a larger assembly of disciples that day, including the 11. In verse 36, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Seems like he's kind of saying that you weren't afraid of me when I was here. Well, I'm just here. It's me. Why are you worried? Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Verse 44. Notice what he says to them then as he comforts their hearts. He says this. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand 
the scriptures. This is what I told you. More often than not, I told you so is a hard word to hear. But there are times when it is very comforting. And this is one of those times. The disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying during his earthly ministry. But now they do. And to hear the resurrected Jesus say, this is what I was telling you all along, were words of rebuke. Chapter 24 and verse 25. How foolish and slow of heart. That's a word of rebuke. The prophets have been saying it all along, and I told you all along how foolish and slow you are. It's a word of rebuke. But this I told you so is also a word of great comfort. God had this whole plan worked out from the beginning. And Jesus repeatedly proclaimed God's plan. This is what I have been saying. Do you see it now? Do you understand? Jesus draws them out of the fog of disbelief. He puts an arm around them and brings them into the understanding and now what they had been hearing, what he had been prophesying, they realize, they understand, and in this they rejoice. Yes, all along he had been saying this. He'd been saying it to both friends and enemies. Certainly more pointedly to his friends, but the illusions were there for his enemies to understand. The prophets were there for them to hear. So for some, the eventual I told you so was a word of confronting rebuke. For others, it was a word of joy. For some, it was a comfort. For some, a word of judgment. And so we must ask, as we consider these prophecies and predictions of Christ during his earthly life, we must consider what will it be for you when you meet the risen Christ in eternity? Will it be a word of comfort or will it be a word of judgment? One thing that we can say, just having gone through the experience of this hour together, you have heard I have heard. We have heard what the prophets have said. We have heard what the Word of God proclaims. We have heard what Jesus said, that He would rise and that He would die for sin. We've heard the Word. Salvation is in the name of Jesus Christ. You have heard and I have heard. This same Jesus who prophesied that he would be cruelly executed and then rise from the dead, I want you all to understand, has also prophesied that he would come again. 
You know, you can prophesy who's going to win a basketball game and get it right. You can prophesy who's going to win the NCAA tournament and get all four final four teams and pick the winner. Be pretty impressive. And you can predict that it's not going to rain on a day when they say it will. And we can make more predictions in life and get a few things right. But I want to ask you, who says I am going to die and when I'm dead, I'll rise again? <coughs> Only God. That's what Jesus prophesied. We need to understand that he also prophesied that he's coming back. If you can prophesy that you'll rise from the dead three days after you're killed, you can prophesy that you're coming back. And those who hear had better hear. Jesus will come again. And in that day, he will say in so many words, I told you so. I told you so. Will that be for you a day of comfort? Or will it be for you a day of condemnation? Will it be a day of judgment because you did not believe what Christ said? Or will it be a word of welcome through gates of splendor? You see, Jesus didn't just simply wash clean everyone's sin. The Bible is very clear on that point that we must come to a place where we embrace what He did, lay down our sins, turn from them as we embrace that Jesus paid their penalty, and accept His forgiveness. If you've not come to that place knowing what Jesus did is not enough. You must come to embrace what He did and receive it as His gift to you. So that when you enter eternity, and Jesus says, I told you so, they will be words of comfort and joy. You don't have to buy that right. It's a gift of God. Receive it today. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we come into your presence with thanks of heart for what Christ has done and for these prophecies of his coming resurrection to the disciples. And now for us the privilege to understand what he has accomplished for us. I pray, God, that you would bring any who are separated from you to a place of saving faith in this work of Christ crucified for sin and risen in victory over death and sin's punishment. Lord, bring them, I pray. I ask God that you would move us who know you as Savior to rejoice in this truth. May we sing with all of our heart to the Lord for his great power in conquering death. And may we come now and draw near to you. Through Christ I pray. Amen.